0: Today, we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, the big reveal, we call it. Um, a few years ago, I was at a book signing event, and I met this author that I really think very highly of now that I've written her material called Leslie Vernick. You might have heard of her. She's a Christian counselor and a uh, very good writer. So we exchanged books at the time, and we promised to read each other's books, which I was pretty thrilled about. <laughs> I don't know if she ever read mine, but I read hers. <laughs> And, um, and I was so impressed with what she wrote, I actually ended up um, buying a lot of her other books. I, I, I love them. I've bought them for other people, given them out. She's all about relationship, really, really good stuff. Um, this is the book I'm going to be quoting out of today. It's called The Emotionally Destructive Relationship. Um, if you want the title and, and her name later, I'm happy to give it to you. Um, so in this book, Emotionally Destructive... Oh, another book, It's Emotionally Destructive Marriage, she talks about her own relationship with her mother, which was not a positive one. The mom, evidently, with her mouth, caused great damage to her as a little girl and in her teen and even in her adult years. One time as an adult, the mother almost destroyed her with her words. She said this, She hated Leslie, and she wished she were dead. Now, can you imagine getting that from your mother? And she wrote, after I angrily angrily responded with a few choice words of my own, I stumbled out of her house feeling like I wanted to die. Such a sad story. And more common than we wish it was. Sometimes hurt we experience seems to leave this permanent sore spot that can never be healed. Have you ever had a hurt inflicted on you to this day? that uh, you can't even imagine actually recovering from? Have you maybe made some big mistake and the shame and the guilt, you wonder if you can ever get past it whenever it comes to mind? Well, that, me- that message that we're going to be doing today is for you. We've been going through the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in a series entitled The Big Reveal. And the reason we called it that is this book from Mark is the very first written proclamation of the identity and purpose of Jesus Christ. Mark was the first out of the four Gospels, and uh, he had his, his whole thing was about proclaiming the identity and purpose of Christ. So what has Mark revealed so far? We've, we're still in chapter 1. <laughs> After a couple of weeks, we're dividing up into chunks that are easy to digest. Um, it's a long chapter 1. We're going to finish it today. But here's what we have so far. First of all, Mark has showed us his true identity. In the very beginning of the book, he calls him the Son of God, and then he tells the story of during Jesus' baptism, when a voice from heaven comes out and for everyone to hear, "You are my Son; in you I am well pleased." Mark also establishes the authority of Christ in his teaching. Um, when he was teaching at the synagogue, uh, he tells us they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as ha- one having authority and not of the scribes. We also see his authority over the spiritual world in in his ousting of a demon and that same uh, incident in the synagogue. And the demons say this, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So he's shown as an authority, both in his teaching and in the spiritual world. Another thing Mark establishes is the ministry of Christ. Because he establishes himself as a rabbi. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's calling disciples to follow him and live with him and be mentored by him, just exactly what a rabbi would do. And last, we know about so far his message, preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, he said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So after establishing all that in the first half of the chapter, Mark continues to demonstrate with these things, and he doesn't use a lot of narrative here. Mark is all about the action. Now, at some point at every writer's conference I've ever been, uh, they tell you this, show, don't tell. And what they mean is, develop your characters by showing them in the scene, maybe in a series of events, rather than just telling about them in narration. Uh, make your plot development, or even if it's a, a nonfiction book, your words of wisdom or teaching come alive through pictures and through examples. Avoid long narration at all costs. And you've probably read books that do a lot of narration like that. Boring. <laughs> so think action. And I think Mark must have somehow gotten that same uh, advice because he's a, a man of writing about action. We've seen it already. He moves us quickly from one scene to another. He keeps using the word yusus, which is immediately, immediately this, immediately that, showing this quick succession of events. That's why I like Mark so much, because for a girl with ADD like I am, uh, it keeps me interested and alert. So today we're going to be looking at Jesus through some more events, uh, further events that Mark relates, and seeing Jesus in action makes his ministry personal. His actions and words show compassion and a personal touch, literal touch, and diversity in what he can do. So we're going to read this section of Mark and take a good look at these incidents. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into the synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Now we're going to stop there. Uh, We will finish the chapter in a few minutes, but um, I, I want to kind of concentrate on this for a few moments. So let's pray and ask God to help us dissect his word. Lord, we thank you so much for the richness of your word. How much is in there if we just look? We thank you so much, God, for the truths that you are going to demonstrate today. And we just ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each of our hearts as we hear these things, use them to transform us into the likeness of Christ. I pray, God, that you would get me out of the way and help the truth of these um, events be uh, loudly shown and, um, and not let me do anything to keep people from that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I studied this passage, I look for threads, threads that would kind of make the, the section cohesive, hold it all together. Why? Because context is vitally important to getting a good interpretation of any passage of scripture. Because Mark place these specific events all together, as a group, um, for a reason. So we need to look at each story, not on its own, but as a part of a whole. So the first of the most and most obvious of the varying threads were the healings that Mark has talked about in this section. It's a new revelation in, in Mark's proclamation that Jesus' power and authority over disease and other physical ailments. It's the first time he's healed anybody. So let's talk about the healings. The first healing was with Simon's mother-in-law. It shows Jesus' authority over illness. Now, we don't know exactly what the illness was, what the fever was, because back then, fever was considered a separate illness than uh, just a symptom of another thing. The fever was its own thing. So he just says it's a fever, and that's what they mean. <laughs> so, and the passage starts like this, and immediately after. Well, we've got to take a look at that. After what? Because that makes a difference. To give us context, we have to look back in the chapter a little bit to find that one day Jesus was there in Capernaum, and one day he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to teach. And during that service, he exercised a demon out of a man. Now, people were amazed at what they saw and heard and, uh, and remarked about the authority of his teaching and the authority that his miracle represented. So Jesus then leaves the synagogue and goes straight to the house of Simon and Andrew. And there they find Simon's mother-in-law sick with fever. Well, what we see here with this one person in this house, quiet house, where uh, it's very personal. We know who it is he's healing we know exactly what he did, took her by the hand, raised her up, and the fever left her. We, sh- we know the in- instantaneous um, and complete nature of the healing because she got right up and started serving them. I don't know about you, when I've been sick and I get up the next day, I'm not serving anybody. <laughs> so the memory of that illness probably would stay with her forever because of the fact that Jesus Um, had taken the physical effects, and it was vanished. So then the Sabbath ends at sundown. So the word over his authority over demons that had happened in the synagogue um, had spread throughout the city. But people didn't show up during the day for one single reason, and that is because it was the Sabbath. And you couldn't walk a certain distance. You couldn't carry anybody. That was work, and that would disobey the Sabbath law. But once the sun went down, Now it's not the Sabbath anymore, because a a Jewish day goes from sundown to sundown. Um, So now it was legal to carry somebody to the house. So they flocked to his door after dark, bringing sick, demon-possessed to be healed. And heal them he did. So many healings, but the excitement and power of Jesus was already beginning to overshadow Jesus' real mission. You know, I've actually heard people preach that Jesus came to heal the sick and feed the poor. That's not why he came. And Jesus shows us that in what he says. Um, He goes in the next morning, next scene, Jesus goes out to a secluded place to pray and his four disciples come looking for him. They tell him people are already at the house before daylight waiting to see him. But this is what Jesus says. Let's go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there. For that is what... I came for. He didn't come to heal. He came to preach. Preach what? Well, back in verse 14, Mark tells us that Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, the good news of God. And he said this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus' message, very simple. It's here. All you've hoped for, all you've longed for, what the prophets have promised, has begun, and the world will never be the same. One of my favorite books of all time is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure most of you have read it. Uh, Lucy arrives into a a land, it's an allegory, and arrives into a land uh, through a wardrobe finding another world where a white witch, her name is the White Witch, has cast a spell so that it's always winter in Narnia, but never Christmas. Might feel like that a little bit this week. <laughs> Later in the book, though, Father Christmas does arrive. And he's, that's signaling, the fact that he was able to get in, was signaling that the witch's spell is weakening. And as the children are walking along, snow and ice are quickly melting, patches of green are starting to show, trees are, being, are budded on the leaves, and they even start to see flowers come out of the ground. There is no doubt after the years of cold, cruel winter, springtime has come to Narnia. And why? Because Aslan has arrived. Well, now back to the real world. We can use that metaphor because it exactly expresses what Jesus was preaching, his good news. God was on the move. Jesus had come and was the living, breathing God in the flesh. He'd come to usher in God's kingdom. The time of spiritual darkness was coming to an end. That was the good news. But would people believe him? A lot of them didn't. So God validated his teaching by signs and miracles that would show the power and authority behind his words. We see that in the very next chapter when Jesus is telling a paralytic that his sins are forgiven and the scribes scribes heard him and they thought he was blaspheming. They said, who can forgive but God alone? And in answer to their thoughts, Jesus says this, so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and go home. The healing of that man showed the authority and power from which Jesus spoke. So you may have heard or seen this quote before. Speak softly and carry a big stick. It's attributed to... um, Theodore Roosevelt, but uh, he got it from some kind of an African proverb, never did find the original source for it, but it was first written, he wrote it first in a letter to Henry Sprague, and he said, speak softly, carry a big stick, and you will go far. He later used that African proverb to actually describe his foreign policy, which won him the Nobel Peace Prize, because he negotiated peace between Russia and Japan, who had been at war he was chosen to do it because he had the government of the United States behind his words. And the power behind his words was what demanded their respect. In the same way, Jesus uh, uh, authenticated his teaching as coming from God by miracles. Now, the last healing we see in this passage is that of a leper. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Move with compassion. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he, Jesus, sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing, what Moses commanded as a testimony to them, but he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. Well, leprosy was a very widespread disease back in those days. A lot of writing about it in the uh, writings, other writings of the. Um, first century lots of, apric- of of afflictions though were called leprosy. There was up to seventy two skin conditions that all got lumped together and called leprosy. but the disease was considered incurable. The rabbi said it was as difficult to heal a leper as it was to raise the dead, so in other words, impossible. In fact, there were only two accounts in the whole Bible besides this one or starting from Jesus in the Old Testament, um, as being leprosy being miraculously held. The first was Moses' sister Miriam, who was given leprosy uh, for seven days as a punishment for her rebellion. And then there was the healing of a Gentile, Naaman, who uh, dipped into the Jordan River seven times, as per request by Elisha, just twice in the history of man. And you know what? Leprosy, it wasn't just a physical ailment. Leprosy made you perpetually unclean in Mosaic law. So not only did the disease eventually rob you of your health, but you lost your occupation, family, and your worship community because lepers were sent away from the population to live in isolation. But no uncleanliness had power over God in the flesh. Jesus, with a touch and two words, be clean, healed him completely. Jesus cured the incurable. He not only cured the man of his physical ailment, and he certainly did, but he took him from ritually unclean to clean. He cleansed that man of all defilement. Mark's first readers no doubt would have been repulsed by Jesus actually touching a leper. As a matter of fact, it was forbidden to even be in close proximity. You couldn't walk under the same tree that a leper had been without becoming unclean. But rather than Jesus becoming unclean by touching the leper, the leper was made clean by Jesus' touch. In the first century, the rule was, if leprosy was ever cured, you would go to a local priest to have that fact validated. You would have to be declared clean by him, and then you would go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices that were prescribed by Mosaic law. And you couldn't enter the temple unless you had that validation from the local priest. So Jesus, confident that the disease was gone, the man was no longer unclean, sends the former leper to receive a pronouncement of his healing. In telling the readers about this healing, Mark is adding to our understanding who Jesus is. He is one with power over any disease to make people clean both physically and spiritually. Jesus was bringing in a new kingdom, a kingdom that he preached about. The Old Testament age of promise with its ceremonial laws of purity was giving way to a new fulfillment where purity would no longer come from ceremonial practices but by the internal cleansing of the Holy Spirit. While the law of Moses provided for ritual purification of a leper, it was powerless to actually purge a man of the disease. But Jesus did. Another thread I noticed in going through this passage is the um, idea of Jesus' growing popularity. Um, After casting out a demon in the synagogue, in his evening of healing and casting out demons, word quickly spread. Verse 28 says, The news of him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Verse 33 says, the whole city gathered at the door. Verse 37 says everyone is looking for you. Now, was Jesus seeking fame and popularity? Decidedly not. Good answer. Remember, when the disciples interrupted his prayer time before sunrise, he didn't go back to soak in acclaim and attention. Rather, he made the decision to leave the crowds behind, leave Capernaum, travel around the the surrounding Galilee district. Why? To preach the good news. And in his travels, it was when he encountered this leper. So after healing him, he told him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go to the priest. Why didn't he want the leper to spread the news of his healing power? Well, Jesus was not drawn toward popularity. He was not drawn toward fame. He was all about three things. The first is God's message. His message, like we said, was to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, people were looking for the kingdom of God. They were looking for it to be initiated with the arrival of the promised one, the Messiah. Zealots were poised to move into a full-fledged revolt as soon as he appeared on the scene. But Jesus had not come for a political upheaval. When he does finally acknowledge himself as the Messiah in chapter 8 of Mark, he defines that role as a son of man who will suffer and die for the ransom of many. Um, Revealing his identity too early would risk inciting the crowds to a messianic furor. The rioting and the upheaval that it would cause would thwart his plan, his purpose, to preach the kingdom of God throughout the towns and villages of Galilee. The crowds actually would create a hindrance hindrance to his essential mission. And the other thing is the motivation of the crowds was questionable. The disciples uh, use a Greek word, translated in our uh, version as seeking, but it also can mean hunted. In every other use of this word in the Gospel of Mark, it has a negative connotation. Um, In 3.32, his mothers and brothers came to hunt him down because they thought he'd lost his mind. In uh, 8, 11, and 12, the Pharisees seek a sign from heaven um, where they're arguing with him, and they want him to perform a miracle. And uh, in other verses, uh, from chapter 11 on, they're, they're looking, seeking him so that they can kill him. So never is seeking a positive thing in Mark nor are the clamoring crowds a sign of success or aid to ministry. Those seeking actually oppose the work of Christ. The second thing, besides the message, is God's timing. And listen to what happened. When the leper didn't keep quiet, as Jesus asked, he spread the news to such an extent that what? Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed in unpopular areas. That was exactly what Jesus was trying to avoid. So he waited on the Spirit's lead to tell him where to go next. And one more thing. He was doing it in God's way, by the right source. You probably notice that when he encouraged, encountered the demons, could, they could not help but proclaim who he was. It was like the demon-possessed man in the synagogue who said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And today in this passage, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Jesus would reveal his identity as the Son of God, as the long-promised Messiah, in his time and in his way. He would not allow the demons to announce anything, and because to have him announced by the powers of hell would give credence to the idea that his powers were from hell, which is exactly what they accused him of. So there's this British comedian, Sasha Bourne-Cohen, who calls himself Borat. I have no idea who he is or, or uh, what, but this is kind of interesting. He starred in this movie called Borat, and he had this shtick in his comedian um, his shows after that that he made relentless fun of the nation of Kazakhstan. Well, when that routine became popular, Hotels.com reported a 300% increase for requests for information about the country. Now, in marketing, they say any publicity is good publicity. But Jesus was not some itinerant magician with a few tricks up his sleeve. He was the son of God. He was inaugurating the kingdom of God. There was a deliberate plan to get enough truth about the kingdom out there to give a context for his suffering, death, and resurrection. It would be God's message, in God's timing, in God's way. And no crowds or demons would deter him from that mission. Okay, so, so what? How does this information that Mark's just given us about Jesus impact our here and now? Well, let's do a quick review. He had power and authority over disease, the physical world, and demons, which was the spiritual world. His healings were made immediate and complete. He healed more than physical illness. His healing went beyond the physical to the internal, restoring the unseen in people as well. So how does that affect us? Well, that same healing power continues today. Jesus is the same Savior as yesterday and will be the same Savior today and tomorrow. He can't be anything but who he is. What Jesus taught in his hometown of Nazareth Early in his ministry in the synagogue, he read a piece of Isaiah 61 and then revealed that the words were written about him. And here's the passage that he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. So I ask you, What oppresses you today? Maybe it's a bad relationship with your parent, or maybe even a spouse. Maybe it's a failure you can't get over, and you can't forgive yourself. Maybe it's hurt that you've experienced, been inflicted on you by a trusted friend. Maybe it's a failed marriage, or failure as a parent. Maybe it's never being able to reach those goals that you had when you were younger like a certain income or being able to buy a house or wishing you could provide better things for your family. How do we get over those things that oppress us, especially when they keep popping up in our minds at unexpected moments to condemn us or bring that past pain right to the present? Well, short answer, we can't. But Jesus can. The Bible promises this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm thirty-four, eighteen, says he doesn't want us to live under the oppression of past hurts, failure, or pain. He wants us to deliver. He wants to deliver us from them. Well, then what does that look like in practical terms? Well, it starts with a decision to give the thing that continues to wound us to him. There's a cute little sign the best way to heal a broken heart is to give God all the pieces. And that's exactly what we need to do. So I've found that there's four simple steps that you can take. I've done this myself, so I can personally recommend it. Um, and I actually have the sheets with these four steps that I'm about to tell you on the table over there. So please grab one on the way out to personally refer to later on. So here's the first step. Tell God the whole story. Tell him about the feelings that that memory brings up when you think of it, what you're afraid of, what you feel guilty over, what you can't get past. And as you tell him, you will gain perspective, godly perspective, as he interacts with you that will help you as you work through the issue. Then, second uh, thing, tell him that you are putting it into his hands You are trusting him to change your heart on this because you know he's powerful enough to heal you of this thing. Tell him you are trusting his character over what's oppressing your heart. Third thing, when the thought tries to rear its ugly head after you've done those things, because we can't control how we feel or even what our thoughts come up, say right out loud, I've given this to you, God, I'm trusting you to bring healing to what oppresses me. You are able to do it, and I will hold on to you like a life preserver while you do. Saying it out loud gives your heart a chance to hear your brain. And finally, a lot of times complete release from the thing is a process. It doesn't happen right away. Not immediately like Peter would like us to think. (laughs) So memorize Paul's sentiment and say that out loud too as you wait for him as often as those thoughts plague you. It's from 2 Timothy 2.12. And it says this, I know whom I've believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day, the day of the Lord. We can trust him with our broken hearts because he says he will heal them, and God cannot lie. Well, in closing, I do want to finish the story of my friend Leslie Vernick. Um, When Leslie brought her pain over her mother's continual rejection to the Lord, he was faithful to hear and faithful to answer her plea. She distinctly remembers at one point hearing God say to her heart, Leslie, she is broken. She will never love you like you want her to. But I love you, and you are special to me. And at that time, Leslie chose to believe him. And from that day forward, her mother's words lost their power over her. She'd been set free. Like we sang this morning, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we all carry things from the past in our hearts, hurt, pain, things that keep us from being whole. Please give us the strength to give it over to you, finally trusting in your power to heal our deepest wounds. We know that you are greater than all of it and nothing is beyond your ability to heal. I pray for each person right now who has a very specific thing in their mind and I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to spend time with you over it and that you would reassure them of your intention to heal. Thank you, God, that you are the great healer. Thank you how Jesus demonstrated that in this chapter. We are blessed beyond measure. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.